Before this week's episode, I want to tell you about Starting Out. It's Digiday's latest podcast hosted by our very own Shireen Pathak. We talk to leaders in the marketing industry about the ideas that inform their prominent voices and big decisions in the business today. We've had guests like GE's Linda Boff, P&G's Mark Pritchard, and agency leaders like Jeff Goodby and Wendy Clark on the show. Find out more on digiday.com or subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Anchor.fm. Hello and welcome to Digiday Live, our podcast where we bring you the best sessions from our many summits around the world. I'm Aditi Sango, and this episode is our session from the Digiday Programmatic Marketing Summit that we recently held in New Orleans, Louisiana. Brands are building internal programmatic expertise. They're becoming smarter about ad tech. So what does it mean to be a CMO in these times? Hear from SAP's digital marketing officer, Mika Yamamoto. She talks about how brands can engineer digital platforms that prioritize transparency while delighting customers. So today we're going to talk about trust and trust as a currency and trust as a differentiator. We're going to talk about that in the context of making a series of trade-offs. The main trade-off we're going to talk about is the trade-off, and it seems like it's thematic with the town hall that you had, is GDPR, regulation, first-party data, um, cleaning up the media supply chain, is thinking about this notion of how do we build this trust in this new landscape that we're in as marketers, and how do you drive this trade-off between privacy and personalization? You know, every single touch point that we have, whether we're intentional about it or not, as marketers, matters. And as our CEO says at SAP, you build trust in drops, but you can lose it in buckets. And you can, especially in this environment when it only takes one individual to create a movement. It only took one individual, although the angst of a lot of other individuals, you know, created some groundswell around this. But if you think of in January of last year, um, the hashtag delete Uber movement. Right? It took one person to start that. It took a lot of people to actually pile onto that, but created a massive movement which affected the pricing of Uber. It, affected, it had a massive effect on their market share, on their mind share, and what people thought, the brand preference of that brand. If you think of the movement that happened around United Airlines in April of last year, of that one person who decided to create a movement by videotaping the passenger that got dragged off the plane, that was a pretty epic movement that cost United Airlines, hundreds of millions of dollars in recovery, and they're still recovering, I'd say, from a brand standpoint. And so, you know, the probability is pretty high that there is one movement that could happen to your brand, and the damage is pretty significant. And so it, thinking about how we build that trust and how we interact with our customers at every touch point is, is important. Um, it's important, and it becomes this, this way that we have to think about how we build the sustained value for our companies, because that's essentially what we do as marketers. So I'm going to start this by talking about someone, and that is my mother. Um, my mother's name is Elizabeth, and she is a woman who is a baby boomer. And she, as an individual, has a really big issue with sharing her data. She actually has a flip phone because she doesn't use a smartphone because she's afraid of the transmission of information that might happen on her smartphone. Um, she doesn't want to use an ATM um, because she's afraid of what will happen um, if she does use an ATM, so that kind of scares her. 
Um, and so as, as far as privacy is concerned, she's the most locked down individual that I know. But if you think of her generation, the baby boomer, baby boomer generation, her generation actually represents 70%, 70% of the disposable income in the United States. So if we can't find a way to build trust with my mom, and she is very different from her, her peers, right? There's peers, and I'm sure you have parents out there, relatives out there who, are, who have an Apple Watch and an iPad and the newest phone. Um, you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all, right? I mean, so we have to think about how we build trust with this generation, this baby, baby boomer generation, how we build trust with millennials, et cetera, but we can't be that generic in terms of how we build that trust. Because we think of me, and this is my world, right? This is my immediate world, which is my three sons and myself. I have a 16-year-old son, I have a 14-year-old son, and I have a 13-year-old son. I also am responsible for heading up one of the busiest food banks in the Seattle area. I am uh, at SAP as a C-level exec running marketing, and so I work about 80 hours a week. I probably take three to four planes a week and operate in several time zones, and I have teams in 180 countries worldwide. Um, I like to compete in a few triathlons and running races every year. I try to pick a few mountains to climb in the year um, and spend a weekend on those mountains just kind of chilling out and disconnecting for a little while. And I try to schedule one epic vacation with my kids every year. And that's us at Machu Picchu um, in, uh, in last August. And this August we will head over to Africa for three weeks. And so to get all this done, I actually schedule my world, including my sleep, in 15-minute increments. So 20 hours a day, well, actually 24 hours a day because I sleep four, um, it is scheduled. And I have something scheduled, even if it's break or eat or walk somewhere, every single element is scheduled. And that's so that I can pack all those things into my day, which is fine. But in order to do that, I am very willing, unlike my mother, to share gobs of information with companies as long as I feel like I can trust them. And so if we think of the travel folks that I use, I travel all the time, I give them everything about me. I have to do so because of personal safety reasons, but I also do so so that if I'm going into a dangerous area, I make sure that I'm safe. Um, but I also do so so that they understand what's happening and what I optimize for, because I often take overnight trips so I can pack all this in, so I'll sleep on a plane, get up, shower, and then present an hour later. And so I'm willing to actually give up a ton of that information. So if you think of this contrast of my mother and myself, and those are sample sizes of two people, but they're sample sizes of two people that you probably have to market with, market to you know, a set of individuals. And we heard a second ago when we were talking about um, the, uh, the town hall is that you, know, you think of classic segmentation of gender and age and location and DMA. You can't, we can't market that way anymore. We can't think of, if you're a woman, age this, this age, with this educational background, we are going to treat you this way. This one-size-fits-many approach just doesn't work. Um, there's a ton of preferences and individual preferences, which is why, again, it, it was music to my ears that you all felt like first-party data was really important, because it's this combination of the data and technology and strategy and process and metrics and competencies within your own companies that enables you to take that combination of elements and build this trust. And we're building this trust because we're losing this ability to be able to do this push 
this push marketing, right, which we shouldn't have really done anyhow. Um, and we're in this, in this era of having to drive pull marketing, right? And so we have to be relevant, contextually relevant, based on the device someone's using and where they might be in that particular point in time. So you think of Strava. Um, how many of you cycle or run out there? How many of you use Strava? Anyway, it's an, app, it's an app on your phone that interfaces with devices that essentially tracks all your runs and, and, and all your cycles, and it, it tells you how fast you're going and your pace, et cetera. And what's brilliant is that you know, if you do run or if you cycle, you might be mildly competitive. And if you just have the basic version of the app, you'll finish a run, and contextually, and if you just have the basic version, contextually it'll say, somebody actually beat you on this segment. And to find out, you can buy the premium version and you can find out by how much did they beat you and then you can try to beat them next time. And so contextually, they offer me this service. I'm like, I want to know who beat me and I want to know how fast they beat me by because I'm going to kick their butt when I do it next time. And you can find out by gender, by date, um, by age, how, who beat you. Um, and it, it's contextually driven, which is far more effective than me getting an email or when I'm at work getting a display ad that says, find out who beat you on your last run, because that's contextually just not relevant for me. And that's the type of thing that we have to consider, those touch points that we have to consider when we're thinking about our customers and when we're presenting them with information, because it's no longer a push strategy that's actually working. It's really a pull strategy that has to be contextually relevant. It's contextually relevant because it affords us this ability to drive more value to our customers, again, at that point in need, of, of need. And it even has the added benefit of getting to charge more money for what we give if we actually can build that trusted relationship and if, in fact, we are relevant. So a study showed that if I had a complaint, if com consumers had a complaint about a hotel or a travel arrangement that they made, and if they tweeted that company, if they, if they posted a tweet for that company, name the airline, insert hotel company here, and if they actually saw a response in greater than 60 minutes, or greater than 60 minutes, compared to if they saw a response within five minutes, their likelihood, their incremental value that they placed on willingness to pay more for a service provided by that airline or by that hotel was five times higher if they actually saw a response within five minutes. So it's at point of need, it's contextually relevant, and timing is key. And this is key because we have to think about how all these touch points and the effect of how we communicate to our customers changed. So I'm Mika Yamamoto, and I'm the Chief Digital Marketing Officer of SAP. And so we are the first largest, we're the biggest software company in Europe. Um, we're the most recognized brand in Germany. We're the third biggest software company on the planet. And if you haven't, if you're not aware of what SAP does, what SAP does is essentially enables companies to do what they do, to buy and sell goods, to track those goods, um, to, hire, to hire people, you know, help them progress through for their careers. And so all of our customers combined actually create 78% of the world's food. 77% um, of the world's transactions touch an SAP system, and about 82% of the world's medical devices are created by our customers. So by some way, somewhere on, you know, in your universe, if not you yourself, have been touched by um, an SAP system in some, in some way through the supply chain. And what our job is to do is to think about creating these amazing customer experiences, whether you notice them or not, uh, to be able to build this customer trust. So let's, let's keep talking about this notion of customer trust. And why, why should we bother focusing on trust? Why not just sell what we sell, do what we're going to do? Why bother? Well, it turns out, um, you know, we want to 
drive value for our companies, right? We want to do so profitably. We, as marketers, get seen as expense centers and line items that are um, operating expenses. But I think as marketers, we're trying to emerge as you know, people and individuals in a discipline that actually drives shareholder value, which means profitability. And if we treat our customers like transactions versus relationships and trusted relationships, we actually are going to bring up the customer, you know, cost of acquisitions of our customers because we're not focusing on retention or satisfaction. Companies that actually focus on trust and optimize for trust at all their touch points see better mind share, they see better market share, they see higher retention, they see higher ability to drive cross-sell and upsell of their, um, of their products, and they see higher NPS scores. All of those drive incredible value, and all of those are our responsibility as marketers to drive. And so as we build this notion of building trust, that's our responsibility to help drive that within the company. And hopefully, you have partners in sales, and you have partners in IT, and you have senior leaders in, in product area who actually do that for you. But sometimes it requires marketing to have to, have to, drive, have to drive that movement. And why is it different? Why are we actually talking about first-party data? Why are we talking about the cleanup of, of the uh, media supply chain? Um, why are we talking about you know, regulation? What's causing all this? Um, there's this convergence of market forces that have, that have created a new, a new opportunity for us as marketers. And I think it's actually a lot more exciting just because we get to have a seat at the table if we choose to actually play this role in really driving value for our shareholders, value for our customers. And that is that, number one, customer expectations are shifting. Customers are actually quite tired of being marketed to. So this is this notion of push versus pull. And that actually customers are 80% more likely to do business with a brand if they, have, if they see personalized experiences. Right? I don't want to see a generic ad. I have so many things that hit me every day. But if you're willing to customize something for me and make it relevant and valuable for me, I'm actually more likely to read your email, engage with whatever message that you're showing me in my application. All of this is made possible through technology and data. Right? We have machine learning. We have artificial intelligence. And those allow us to predictively determine what outcomes might take place with a given customer. And then it allows us to be able to focus our time and energy and mechanize and automate the things that we know are going to happen. When customer does this, 99% of the time, customer wants this, so let's serve him or her up this response or this outcome automatically so we can spend our people time, because people aren't going to go away, our people time on things that matter most that machines can't do. Um, we have companies like Spotify who then watch and track all the music that you're listening to, and then you can have a discover playlist. And that's not by accident, because you have a discover playlist, and you may or may not like a song that comes up, and if you have the basic version of Spotify, and you select if you want to skip the song that they gave you or skip an ad, you'll see a contextually relevant message that says, hey, that's awesome that you want to skip this. Um, but if you do, you want the premium version of Spotify. So this allows them to be able to monetize your preferences at point of need. It allows them to reap the reward of getting more money, but also allows them to see you and add value to you, again, at point of need and have you be a stickier customer, hopefully. But what's important is that this data needs to be accurate. And I saw you know, the feedback that over 80% of you believe that, or a group of us, like a cohort of other marketers, believe that third-party data isn't very accurate. And it's true. I mean, my company, we buy third-party data about our customers, and we have to make sure that we understand and do a cross-check to see whether it's true against our first-party data. 
I did a poll of my own first party data as a consumer, and what was interesting is that they classified me as a white collar worker, true. They classified that I probably have teenagers in my house, true. They classified that I was probably likely to engage in outdoor activities, true. But they also classified me, and I'm not sure what criteria they're pulling for this, as a blue collar worker, which I'm not. Um, they also classified me as a fan of the NFL, which I am not. Um, and they also actually said I was most likely to drive a Buick. Um, and I, uh, I don't, I've never owned an American car. Um, I drive a, Volkswagen, a very basic Volkswagen Bug. And so if they were to market to me based on preference of NFL, that I drive a Buick, that I have a blue collar job, although the blue collar might appeal to me somehow, um, there's some data that's actually telling them this, um, they'd be wrong and that would be inaccurate. So we have to think about the accuracy of our own data also, right? That's third party data, but there's our own first party data. And I've, I don't know if you've ever done a scrub and GDPR is a great opportunity to drive that scrub. Um, but uh, a lot of our first party data is actually inaccurate as well, or we have multiple records. At SAP, we have the most, the most frequently, um, the, most, uh, the customer that frequents us the most on our website is Mickey Mouse. Um, we get Mickey Mouse at x.com all day long. Um, and he is a very popular customer of ours because that's what most people enter when they actually don't want to enter their own email address. And we know that that's not a real person, right? But we have to be able to scrub that. And until we actually started to scrub our information, transparently, we actually used to treat this individual that was named Mickey Mouse because we actually didn't do any you know, character recognition to say Mickey Mouse is, is probably false. So we actually spent time and energy on shuttling Mickey Mouse through our pipeline, which was not a, not a good idea and a waste of time. If you find this session interesting, there's a lot more from our summit that we can tell you about in our event briefing. After every summit, we release these briefings on what's discussed in town halls, working groups, and state sessions. And if you subscribe to Digiday Plus, you can get these briefings too. Digiday Plus is our premium subscription product. And if you subscribe, you get the Digiday magazine, event briefings, exclusive research, and invites to member events. It's only $395 a year. And if you want a 25% discount, here's a code. Enter podcast at checkout. To learn more, visit digiday.com, and you will see the Digiday Plus tab on the menu bar. Now, back to the episode. Um, the stakes are higher now, right? We think about the stakes, and we think of the Cambridge Analytica scandal with Facebook, and that week that that scandal broke, their stock price dropped by 18%, right? They lost trust in buckets that day. Um, and they've been working slowly to earn it back in drops, but it takes a lot of energy for them to earn it back in drops, right? That's, you have to start from a negative position. You're no longer building positive trust with your customers. And lastly, there's regulations. There's regulations, and it sounds like, you know, based on the, the feedback that, I just, that we just looked at, that GDPR is a reality for all of us, that, you know, being threatened with the fine of 4% of our revenues is pretty meaningful. And I would say, you know, it is a, it is, it is a challenge and it's an, it's an awesome challenge to get to work with lawyers every day and that's where I spend most of my days right now, um, given that we do business in 180 countries and we're based in Europe and our, uh, and our lawyers are European and they're German and very German. Um, and so it's this battle of, well, should I actually apply the same regulation in Thailand, honestly, as I do in Germany? Probably not, but Current, currently, a few days after the rollout of GDPR, we are. And so this is an interesting challenge for us as a multinational, and I'm sure you're seeing your own set of challenges. Um, and so this also drives this notion of we are being limited to how much we're able to 
blast our customers. And it's actually a good thing because customers don't want that. And we see that as an excuse and it's an easy check the box exercise for marketers to go, yep, I bought a list and I emailed the list and you feel like that's an, ex that's an awesome thing to have done. Um, it actually doesn't reap very much rewards. The cost of acquisition is really high because it, the conversion rate on those types of leads that you get in that way actually isn't that meaningful. Um, and so you see activities like Adidas who are thinking of a different way to capture their customers. And there's this Adidas-Nike battle as well as Puma, et cetera. You think of Adidas who has associated themselves with Kanye West. And for whatever you believe in Kanye West, he actually has provided them a tremendous amount of value in creating this scarcely available set of sneakers called Yeezys. So anyone in your world actually really obsessed over those shoes? Okay, well... I have a household that's pretty obsessed with those shoes and I refuse to buy them, but it's caused this buzz about Adidas shoes, which we now actually have. Like a, my, Nike five years ago used to be the ch shoes of choice and now if you look on our shoe rack, it's all Adidas. And so this halo effect, although I haven't bought $1,000 shoes for my kids, um, is the halo effect of the brand has actually been that it's actually created a buzz around Adidas. And so they haven't done their typical advertising in you know, digital or out of home, they've actually created scarcity for their product. And that's actually created an amazing halo effect that's resulted in a net loss of share for Nike and a net gain of, for Adidas into double digits now of three and a half percent, which is really meaningful in the shoe industry. Not to mention the value of their brand actually being tremendously more valuable. And so what we have to do is we have to think about as brands, how are you going to react? Regardless of whether you're B2C or B2B, you have to think about balancing. And it's all this balancing and optimization. Right? You can't maximize for anything just as you can't as a human being. Like I would like to maximize for as much sleep as possible and I would probably lose my job. I would like to, you know, and I would probably not be able to run anymore, et cetera. Um, so you can't maximize for anything, whether, you know, day-to-day -day life or as a marketer. So we have to think about how we're balancing this privacy piece, which is making sure that we're taking hold and, 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 um, and securing the data that we have of our customers and personalization. And personalization and delivering value can't just be a blanket statement that says, I know that you're an 18-year-old woman who is in high school, and therefore this must be your preference, so I'm going to treat you the same way, because you may have different preferences than another 18-year-old woman who might be in the same DMA, in the same school, in fact, and your preferences may be much different. And so we have to think about this balance because our first requirement is to, to, to be great um, stewards of our customers' data. We see breaches like the Equifax breach. We see Cambridge Analytica. We see lots of different data breaches. And that nothing erodes trust, like taking the most precious information, transactional information that we have about our customers, and having something happen with that information. So we have to make sure that we're clear about that information and where it, where it sits in our organizations and make sure that our customers feel really secure that if they give it to us, that we're going to take care of it. Um, it's not just credit card information and transaction information. It's actually information about preferences. If I tell you that I really don't want to get an email from you about this topic, but I'd love for you to send an email about this other topic, then I want you to honor that commitment. And for those of you who work on the MarTech stack within your companies, that can be really complicated because a lot of our stacks weren't built to actually bifurcate those types of preferences and therefore communicate and customize communications with our customers in that way. And so that causes you know, amazing dialogues um, and um, work requirements for our IT professionals that never thought they would have to have these conversations with us marketers. What we also have to do is think about 
how we, uh, how we drive personalization as well. And so when we think about personalization, the optimized ex exercise is as follows. Number one, you need the data, right? And so if you haven't been capturing the data, you don't have the data, whether it's historical or not. You have to capture it in the right way. And then what you have to know is understand how to interpret that data to say, what are the needs of this cohort or this individual versus this individual, though on paper they look exactly the same because they might have different preferences. And if they have different preferences, they have different needs. They may not be like me willing to give up all of my data for the sake of convenience because I'm all about convenience to maximize how many adventures I can take with my kids to run faster, to cycle faster, to sleep more. I mean, that's what I optimize for. And so I'm willing to give out all my data, whereas you know, someone who actually might be the exact same demographic profile as me might be completely different. And so what we have to do is understand what people value and deliver that value because otherwise you cross the line, right? You cross the line between convenience and intrusion and you don't want to do that. The other trade-off we have is providing value and providing sh like value to a customer and shareholder value to your company, right? You don't do this. Most of us aren't in, like, in this audience learning about this to be able to drive your not-for-profit business. Most of us actually do answer to shareholders or investors, right? And so in order to do that, we have to continue to add value to our, to our companies as marketers. And again, this is a growing requirement of marketers to do that. And so there's this commercial need to be able to say, well, did you drive leads? Did you drive how many customers did you acquire? Did you help us with retention? So we want to take that data and we want to sell more, but if we sell more and we seem self-serving and trying to sell more by using our customers' data, we erode the trust and our customers will back away. So this is another tension point that we have to face is we're going to try to drive this trust, but we want to drive this trust and we want to drive commercial value. So we don't want to seem intrusive, we don't want to seem self-serving, and we want to drive this trust, which is a really delicate balance and requires us to really understand our customers and use technologies that are out there today, like, um, like machine learning, to be able to determine where that, preference, where that preference lies so we don't cross that line. Because the minute you erode that trust is when you've lost it in buckets and it's really hard to get back. So where are we? Like, where does this bring us? It brings us to this point where, first and foremost, we have to do no harm. Right? For us to build ultimately the trust on you're making our customer's life easier, this is sort of like Maslow's hierarchy, right? In order for us to see self-actualization as a marketer, you have to first make sure that we deal with the food, clothing, shelter, and do no harm with the data that we have of our customers. Because if we can't hold that data near and dear, we certainly aren't going to earn the ability to go anywhere beyond level one. So we have to think about that. And it's not just the credit card information or transactional information. It's also how people prefer to be contacted. The next is thinking about recognizing preferences. Like, how do you recognize preferences? And if I've told you something, are you reflecting that in, um, in how you're communicating with me? And it might be something as simple. My favorite website right now is called massdrop.com. And I've they have dozens of areas and communities, they call them, where they actually uh, crowdsource new products that they're going to sell on a discount. They, uh, they actually enjoy much of my disposable income these days. And, uh, and it's because I've chosen various communities, and they very effectively told me about the new products that are available that I now need. Right? Like, I didn't need them yesterday, but today I actually got several mails, and I ordered three things today that I 
that I absolutely needed based on the, how they've customized their, to their transactions. So now I have a set of ebony chopsticks that are on their way. I have a mortar and pestle that, uh, that's on its way, and I'm eyeing this one that they're actually polling customers about, and that's a, uh, an outdoor pizza oven, which I, of course, totally need. And so, you know, I've, I've, they've enjoyed a lot of my, um, a lot of my disposable income and discovering needs in me that I never even knew I had because they're actually recognizing my preferences and communicating with me really effectively. And then the next is making my life easier. Right? How are, they making my, how are you making my, my life easier? And it's either easier because I get somewhere faster. So if I think of ways, um, you know, I am willing to give contact information and in my schedule so that my days are optimized, my route's optimized, I have to click less on my phone and I can get to my friend's house if I'm going to my friend's house. So that when I'm traveling, my nest will tell me and predictively say, hey, you're away this much, so this is the pattern that we're seeing, so you can probably lower your heating bills and not heat your house or cool your house whenever you're not there based on these patterns, right? I'm willing to actually say, okay, I'll have a nest and I'll give you all my information of when I'm in and out of my house so you actually optimize how my house runs. I'm willing to give up that information and it makes my life easier. So for us, in conclusion, as marketers, what we have to think about is this series of trade-offs, right? We can't just maximize for privacy or else we're going to lock down our ability to contact our customers. But if we actually maximize for contacting our customers and are you know, overly personal, we may step in this area where we're actually intrusive. So we have to make sure that we're, we're solving for convenience and not intrusion. And that is an individual preference because, again, the classic segmentation exercises that that we may have learned at one point as marketers just don't work anymore. And so it's taking advantage of the technologies that we have at our disposal to really build that trust so that we can drive that value as marketers versus just be you know, an extra cost center or just like, what do you do exactly for the company? And earn that seat at the table as a true business steward and, uh, and customer experience designer for our companies. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you, Mika. I have to ask about the sleep thing. <laughs> 15 minutes at a time? No, no, no. Um, well, yeah, sometimes. But no, it's four hours a night. Is I schedule okay. four hours a night. But it's but in one chunk. It's in, t sometimes. Okay. Last night it wasn't. I miss so her. I sometimes do it in little chunks. So I four hours slept night. for a few hours. I worked for a few hours. And then I slept for a few more. So. Are you tired? No, I feel good. <laughs> OK. Um, so uh, one thing that stood out was this first-party data versus third-party data. Yeah. And it was like, it's not like one's good, one's bad. Right. Explain the nuance there. Some, some first-party data is useless. Some, a lot of it is. I mean, we've realized, and GDPR has been a gift to us in looking at, you know, we have in the United States millions of records, and we realize those millions of records we felt like were goals, and we know we have millions of records. And we look back and we say, and then we... we did the estimate on if we did this consent campaign, right? We said if, if we went to these millions of people, how many are going to agree to contact us? We estimated about 10, 20%. And we're like, oh my gosh, the sky is falling because, you know, we might only have 20% of them that are actually going to agree mm -hmm. to connect with us. Well, it turns out of those millions of people that we felt so good about, um, we hadn't contacted a ton of them, like at least a million in, in two and a half years. Okay. So it turns out they're not that valuable. Um, and then of those we contacted, some of them were duplicates. And of those that we had, they're no longer at those companies. And so it created this need to be able to make sure that we had good data versus just any data. And so it created this, um, it created this awareness of our own data 
that, you know, that it wasn't as good as, you know, in volume, the volume versus value and quality right. versus quantity definitely is a consideration point. Okay. For Less us. data, but better data. Okay. Mika, thank you so much. Cool. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Thank you. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. If you liked our show, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and Anchor.fm. And help us share it forward. Leave us a review. Give us a five-star rating. Let me know what you think. Email me at aditi at digiday.com. Thanks again for listening. And stay tuned for the next episode.